this is Brent Skousen, youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. Thank you for tuning in today to another lesson taught by W. Cleon Skousen. Today's lecture is number 30 on the Old Testament given in 1973 to his university class. It is unscripted and unedited. The text used today is from the Bible, 2 Samuel chapters 10 through 14, supplemented by Dr. Skousen's book, The 4,000 Years, which can be found online, or if you prefer to listen to the book, check it out at audible.com. Today we cover chapter 6, The Tragic Fall of David. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! full of all kinds of good things I wanted to share and I went in to kiss my wife and tell her goodbye and I couldn't say a word. I couldn't actually get a squeak out. And I'd gone to, I was all set to go and just had never tried to talk. And I'd had a little flu and it had um, disappeared and I thought it was all over but during the night by I'd completely lost my voice, so I apologize for not keeping my appointment with you Tuesday. Now, let's see. You finished which chapter today? Did you finish the building of the Temple of Solomon today? You, you finished the, the um, King Solomon's chapter 10? Seven. Oh, well, good. Somebody came up to me and said you were way ahead of me and said that you were way over there. <clears throat> ready for the exam and I'm, I thought that you were back here where I am well that's fine that's good well let's see if I can catch up Tuesday in part of today's assignment with you when Mormon was doing the abridging of the Book of Mormon you can tell that three people impressed him just about as much as anybody in the Book of Mormon other than Nephi himself and the Savior's experience of course and those were the three people Alma the Younger Moroni and Helaman. So his big book in the Book of Mormon is about those three people. 63 chapters worth. He only devoted about eight chapters to himself, but 63 chapters to these three men. Now, he just felt there was so much to be learned from their lives and their experiences with our Heavenly Father. He just felt that the, whole, the frailties and the uh, marvelous potentials of people as human beings are encompassed in their historical perspective. And so a lot of that is true in David's life. Uh, human beings are capable of such um, uh, almost skyrocketing achievements, creativity, heights of happiness, and then they can descend lower than the animal plane in sorrow and heartbreak, conspiratorial degeneracy. And David tasted of all of these. I really don't know what our Heavenly Father was preparing him for, but I'm sure that life isn't going to be wasted. Uh, just as he enjoyed so many rewards and was blessed with many advantages and lost them all in just one fell swoop of a, a few minutes' misjudgment and the subsequent uh, events growing out of it. Nevertheless, when he's paid his penalty, the Lord may have a program specifically um, cultured just for him. But anyway, at this stage of his life, he is a great success. He's done everything the prophets had been promised for Israel. He's conquered everything over to the Euphrates River and down to Egypt. 
He has his beautiful palace. He's um, been promised the Messiah will come through him. He's been told that his son will build a temple and that his son will live during a period of peace that his father will be able to provide through his military adventures. And everything going for him when the king of the Ammonites died. And that was the beginning of his difficulty. He didn't know it, of course. But when Nahash died, and uh, David did the, the very routine thing that he would ordinarily do in any case with somebody who'd been play, paying his tribute regularly, you know. I mean, it was just the smart thing to do to let the family know that he um, was sorry that the old king had finally passed away. And he sends this embassy down there and they, and they did resent paying tribute to Israel. And so the young crown prince, who's now been made king, he and his advisors decided to show it. And so no, um, uh, Hanum had the David's representatives taken into a room and forcibly cut off half their beards, which is enough of an insult, but then forcibly held them while they cut off all their clothes to the waist and then shoved them out of the palace under the main street. So here they are dodging between rocks and bushes all the way back down to the Jordan River from the capital of Jordan. And that was enough to make anybody bite nails in two. And so when they finally got the word to David how they'd been mistreated, naturally, uh, uh, he could have ordered up an army, but um, he was mature, politically mature at this time. You don't let your feelings get hurt. If they pay their rent, I mean, their tribute and keep the peace, so what? You can tolerate a little insult now and then. So he wasn't going to do anything about it, but the Ammonites thought he was going to do something about it. Are these people believers or heathens? Seed of Abraham or the seed of Japheth? The Ammonites. Descendants of whom? Lot. Who's the nephew of whom? Abraham. So these are cousins. The Ammonites are cousins. Who lives just south of the Ammonites? So they prepared for war and began to resist. They weren't going to pay their tribute or anything else, so of course Joab had to go over and teach them a lesson. He just goes to attack the city, and all of a sudden, who descends on him? The Syrians. These rascals, the Ammonites, had gone up to Syria and employed thousands of mercenaries. And they closed in on the Israelite armies. So Joab, he just divided up and told his younger brother to, you take the Syrians on and I'll take on the Ammonites. And they're probably going to mop the earth with us. There's so many of them. But what happened to Syrians? They turned tail and ran like 60. Went all the way back up to Syria after all this money had been paid uh, by the Ammonites to get them to fight. And so the Syrian kings... Uh, we mustn't get this kind of a reputation. Our mercenaries have got to be the best in the world. You see, the ancient kings, like the modern kings, prided themselves in having very valiant soldiers. In the time, 300 years ago, do you know who the greatest mercenaries were in the world? The Hessians, German Hessians were very famous. Who else? You want to buy some good guards? Every crowned head in Europe would get guards from where? You go to Rome, he had blank guards. You go to France, he had blank guards. What were they called? Who are they? Swiss guards. You want a good mercenary? Get a Swiss. 
And uh, when you go to uh, Lucerne, you'll see there on the side of a mountain, there's a great big uh, cave that's been carved out. And lying in the cave is a dead lion with a spear plunged down through him and broken off at the spearhead. What does that represent? The famous Swiss guard of famous Swiss guard of King Louis when he was taken uh, to be guillotined. Every man died at his post. Every Swiss guard died at his post before they could capture the king. They had to kill every Swiss guard. And there are all their names carved in solid rock and the lion dead, spear broken off, but Anyway, they, they died at their posts, and that's a tribute to them. The Swiss are proud of the fact that when you hire a Swiss, he stands. But these Syrians, eh, you pay good gold for them and a little bit of resistance, and they run. So the down they come, or they're getting ready to come, and when uh, David heard about it, what did he decide to do? What did David decide to do? Resist or fight? You have studied this one, haven't you? Remember that one? Okay. These details get a little fuzzy, I know. That's why we discuss it in class. They do get away from you. Okay. Did he decide to send Joab up to fight them? No. Who, who, who was the leader? Who went into the field to fight? David. All right, you Syrians. You were paying tribute. You think you're going to send mercenaries down here to fight with the Ammonites and stop paying tribute yourselves? You're talking to the head man now. We're going back to our original arrangement. So we went into the field. They fought the battle right here. It's down below Damascus and on the Golan Heights. Who won? Oh, when they were through, there were thousands of Syrians just lying all over the place. And the Syrian king said, that's all right, that's all right, all right. We'll go back as you were, everybody. All right, David, yes, you get your tribute. Sorry, sorry we disturbed the peace, everybody, as you were. So David went home and he said, Now, Joab, all this was caused by these Ammonites getting up on their hind haunches and trying to bar the, bare their teeth. We've got to make an example out of them or some of these other countries will be causing us trouble. So you go down and let's just lay siege to the capital and, and let them know that probably be a little double penalty here. We're just not fooling around with this kind of insubordination. King David is in charge. So Joab went down with the Gibberim, the 600 elite guard and they laid siege well it takes a long time what you do is starve the people out is what you're doing you cut off all the food supplies and eventually they cut off the water and that really did it so David's home alone the gibberine's gone and he's kind of sitting it out they'll let him know when it's time to you know close in which they actually did meanwhile he has time on his hand takes a nice nap in the afternoon came out on the uh, on the roof of his lovely palace and just a breath of fresh air, you know. And he looks down into the section occupied the, by the Gibberim, his royal guard. I remember. And um, he looked down, and that's when he saw Bathsheba taking a bath. Um, the fact that he had an aesthetic appreciation for what he saw was beside the point. Um, he just wanted to make inquiry who this beautiful girl was, and there's no problem there particularly. But he found out that she was the, the wife of one of his commanding officers. What was his name? 
Uriah, and the daughter of one of his top commanding officers and the granddaughter of none less than his prime minister. It's the granddaughter of his prime minister. Now here's where we divide the A students from the A minuses. What was the prime minister's name? Ahithophel. All of you A students, you see, that's marvelous. Ahithophel. All right. Um, now it was all right to find out who she was. If he was appreciative of um, feminine beauty and so forth, he found out who she was. His big mistake was after he found out who she was, he did what? Sent for her. He wants to have a little audience. And um, now it's getting less and less excusable. We're getting protocol now a little bit out of uh, kilter. Well, he was about uh, 50 years of age at this time. She's probably around 21. And um, the conversation went from just, uh, she was just fascinated by him, and he was at least uh, fascinated by her, and terribly infatuated. And it went from talking to holding hands, and first thing they knew, reason had gone out of their heads. They were tremendously attracted to one another physically, and uh, suddenly the moments spun away, and and they both had done what they'd never done before in their lives, violated the seventh commandment. Both of them committed adultery. Both of them violating separate marriage covenants. Now, she apparently was a newlywed and childless at that time. And um, um, when, when it was all over and she'd gone home and David's come to his senses, I'm sure that uh, as a king and as a man who held the priesthood and as a man who had... A great forces under his direction, he must have given himself a real severe lecture. Little did he know that, that this was just the beginning of his problems. He then received a message in a few weeks. She knew that she was with child. Then he's all excited. He's got to protect uh, Bathsheba, and he's got to protect uh, the baby. He's got to, uh, it's just, he's got to really move fast now. And so he decides to send for Uriah, bring him back and have him go home and maybe um, people won't be too confused about the time involved, etc., etc., and it'll cover up. That's so interesting how Uriah conducted himself. He comes home and he reports on the war. How's everything going? Just fine, just fine. And think you're going to make it? Yes, uh, you can see it's tightening up on them. Won't be long now. They'll be coming out and making peace and apologizing for what they did to our embassy down there. Well, that's fine. All right, well, you go to your home and, and um, then go on back to the field tomorrow. So he goes to his home, uh, he starts for his home, apparently, um, David thought, and so he sends vittles so they'll have a nice dinner together, candlelight and so forth, grape juice. And... Um, Next morning, David finds out to his amazement he didn't go home at all. He went out there and slept with the guards outside the palace. So then he called him and said, what would you do that for? Why don't you go to your wife and comfort her? Well, he said, my, my, my friends, uh, Joab and all the valiant ones, they're out there lying on the sod at night in the camps. He said, I would not go to my home. It wouldn't be, just isn't kosher. And uh, so then David got upset and he said, well, now tonight you stay over. And tonight you really go home. I want you to go home. And he said, and by the way, let's drink to it. Let's, uh, so he got him to drinking wine. And sure enough, Uriah's beginning to be a little pop-eyed and happy and so forth. And, and David pats him on the back and said, now you, now you go home. But this, this man is really motivated. He sleeps with the guards again. 
And the next morning when David found out what had happened, now consternation enters in. And now he goes crazy. He absolutely goes insane. All rational thought goes out of his brain. And this happens to people as they, they go down this roadway that um, the heavens call it a sin, but actually it's, um, it's a wandering mind frantically trying to find its way out of a dilemma. And so he actually plots second-degree murder. And he says to Uriah, give this to Joab, and it's actually the death warrant of Uriah. And it's an order to put him out in front where he'll be killed. Well, they're besieging a battle. Where do you go out? What's the front? Well, it's the wall. So Joab threw up a force against the wall, which a smart person, especially during a period of siege, never would do. And of course, the Ammonites, they're smart. They drop rocks and boiling water and whatnot down. And they not only kill Uriah, but some of the leaders of the Israelite army. So Joab knows he's in trouble with David. So he gives the list of the casualties to his messenger and says, take this list of casualties back. And when David appears to be coming very angry because we've lost some of our best men, you say, but Uriah also was killed. And then he won't do anything to you and you'll come back safely. So they reported, and of course David was angry at this extremely bad judgment, strategically speaking. And then they said Uriah also was killed. Oh, is Uriah dead? Yes, Uriah is dead. Oh. So they waited the proper time of mourning. We're, we're up now around um, 60 days, you see. But immediately he married, just as soon as the mourning is over, um, he marries uh, Bathsheba and this is his hopes of keeping her from becoming disgraced and also the child. And then all of you know what happened. Of course, the baby was born in due time. Nobody seems to have even raised an eyebrow about the whole thing. Everything was just going fine. David thinks everything's working according to plan, which it was until one day he's in court of all places. I mean, all the dignitaries around. And who comes in? Nathan. He's got a sad story to tell. And so David's ready to hear it. And the prophet says, we have a, a rich man with many flocks and rich possessions, and his neighbor is a very poor man with one little sheep. The rich man was recently under the necessity of preparing a feast for a visitor. Instead of taking one of his own lambs and killing for the meal, he went to his poor neighbor and took his one little sheep. How judgest thou? Why, David was just full of righteous indignation. Death, unless he repays fourfold. And Nathan turned and says, Thou art the man. Hear the word of the Lord God, Jehovah. I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Oh, what a t terrible blow this must have been to David. There he's, he's telling everybody, all right out here in broad daylight, what happened. It was such a special thing. Now hear the word of the Lord. The sword shall never depart from thine house. Behold, I will raise up an evil against thee out of thine own house. 
And I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of the sun. And Nathan stomped out. Now this is the same Nathan that has told David not too long before that he would be the ancestor of the Messiah, that he'd have a son named, whose name would be the peaceable one and would be very, very blessed of the Lord. This is the same Nathan now exposing the sin of David and, and telling him that his house now will be a source of terror and sorrow the rest of his life. Well, the baby was born in due time and, and then Nathan had said, you will not enjoy the fruits of this sin. The baby will die. So as soon as the baby was born and began to become ill, that's when David went into his fasting and praying that God would somehow spare this little personality. And you remember that he fasted and he prayed right up to the time uh, that it actually died. And then when it died, he went ahead and uh, started eating. He cleaned himself up, and he's eating. He's not even in mourning. And his servants said, um, you were so, f uh, so sorrowful. Uh, now that the baby's dead, instead of mourning, you're going on about your business. Yes, he said, while the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me? that this child may live. But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he can never come to me. This is a great man talking, a great mind. Out of the sorrow of the depths of hell he talks. From now on, all his psalms, everything is out of the depths of Hades. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is even before me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and make not thy Holy Spirit, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. I tell you, that's the anguish of sorrow. And you, not because you would commit a sin like unto David, but you'll have occasions in your life too when you'll go on bended knee and say, Heavenly Father, for my stupidity, for my thoughtlessness, for my inhumanity, forgive me. I know better. I have done evil in thy sight. That's the kind of a prayer that millions have prayed, really although not all for so serious an offense. Now, I had a word to say about murder here just so that you'd be sure and understand the doctrine. It cannot be forgiven. No matter how much a murderer repents, we cannot baptize him. He cannot become a member of the church. What he must do is go ahead and let his life be sacrificed as required by the law of God. That helps him. That shortens the time. If his life, if his own life is is shortened, it helps him shorten the time of paying the uttermost farthing. So we really do him a favor when, after he's convicted, without any shadow of doubt, he's guilty. We send him back to the spirit world as commanded by the Lord. 
then he's not accountable, not held accountable. And uh, they were taught that the murder was a virtue, so it's not murder for them. They were taught that that was the law, their fathers had been beguiled and taken advantage of, and so they were in a different position. But they had been so terrible, they had raped and robbed and looted and wiped out whole villages of Nephites. You see, you have to really take that in its context. So when they are converted to the gospel, even if it was justified by the traditions of their fathers, they went on bended knee and said, Father, even though we thought we were doing a great thing, we won't shed blood again even if our own lives are about to be taken. So they made that very extremely solemn covenant to see if the Lord would forgive them. And the same thing happened um, down um, just before the coming of Christ. Another great body of Lamanites entered that same covenant. That's a question I've never raised nor heard raised, so I'll see if I can find out. I would be surprised if we did, but um, we have to kind of leave that with our Heavenly Father. When we all counseled together in the pre-existence, we agreed that if anybody t deliberately took the life of another, he was outside the atonement. We all agreed that we'd keep life sacred. We did not. It would be new to me if we did, but it, uh, we'll make inquiry. Yes. Now you're talking about a policeman, you say, and he orders somebody to stop and they don't stop. Oh, an escaping convict, and he tells him to stop. R right. Yeah, the law requires the officer to stop him. Now, there was a time when we stopped them with guns, but I've lived long enough in law enforcement to watch that rule change, where uh, um, unless he's extremely dangerous to the community, they'll not shoot him to stop him. They'll just try to apprehend him later. But in my younger days in law enforcement, it was the common rule that if they don't stop when ordered to stop, you just shoot. We never did that in the FBI, but that was the, um, that was the pattern. Then that was changed about 20 years ago or so, in which they said an escapee, don't, um, uh, don't bring him down with a, uh, uh, by shooting him unless he's a danger to the community. Now, many of those people are shot when the officer's trying to wound the individual to stop him, shoot him in the leg or something. And if you're running yourself and out of breath, it's so easy to shooting half a block away to uh, the person gets killed. The FBI had an interesting rule. Uh, we never were allowed to shoot except in defense of our lives, and then we were under orders to shoot in defense of our lives, which means shoot to kill. That saved more FBI agents' lives when that word got out. That if, the, if, if it's an FBI agent, don't fool around. Uh, give up, because uh, you provoke him where if, if he thinks you're going to kill him, why, he won't shoot you in the leg. All his target practice is in the... Uh, in the in the five areas of the silhouettes. And as soon as that word got out, we got so we could just call him on the phone. <laughs> we do, we call him on the phone. So you, if you look out the window, you'll notice that the place is surrounded. 
it's the FBI come out walking with your hands uh, come out walking backwards with your hands up and we'd have somebody in a room right nearby and as they came by they'd just reach out and pull them in and that was that that was so much better than when I first went in the FBI where we were having one shootout after another but then Mr. Hoover just let it be known that FBI agents would never shoot a man except in self-defense and he would always shoot to kill and that just ended that it gave them a it saved the lives of criminals and also FBI agents. Well, yes, if somebody's, somebody's life is in danger. In other words, you're shooting in, this, in the defense of somebody. In other words, life is in danger. And you shoot. That's when my, that was a situation with my brother. Um, one of the ten most wanted criminals in Portland had gone into a barber shop. Uh, when the FBI was advised, he was there, and they closed in on him. And an agent, the first agent to get there, went in to arrest him, and the fellow shot the agent. And then he started to run, but he's in a shopping center. And um, nobody knows what to do. I mean, they got rifles, they got 351s, they got 30 out sixes, they got Tommy guns. What do you do in a shopping center, you see? <laughs> this is, this is con you notice in Hollywood, it's always, uh, everything is cleared, so we got nice clean shots. Well, that wasn't the situation. So <clears throat> this fellow was running, and when my brother saw that Nobody was going to stop him, and he was going to get away. Well, he got, he went over close by a, a telephone pole where he could get a real good sight in, and then he just followed him along and gave himself about a six-inch lead and fired and hit him. But if he had missed, it would have gone right into um, a store where everybody was standing looking through the window, about 20 people. What's all the excitement? And he was right in front of them and stopped the bullet. So, as I remember, Roy got a $1,000 raise and a letter of commendation, and the director put down at the bottom, P.S., if you had missed, you would have been fired. <laughs> Which he would have. But he, he had to exercise judgment. He knew he could hit him. He was an ex one of the top shots in the Bureau. And so he did it and came out in Life magazine. We were all supposed to avoid any publicity of any kind, you know, and came out in the Life magazine. All of the others then uh, uh, handed him the, their guns. Everybody had guns, and so they were taking care of the agent, taking care of the fellow, and so Roy was standing there, and he's, they handed him all the guns. So it came out in Life magazine. Here's a great big picture. Here he is holding 30 out sixes, <laughs> Tommy guns. <laughs> says, agent stops most wanted criminal. <laughs> Looked like it was kind of an unfair fight. Um, excuse me, getting off onto personal things. <clears throat> anyway, that's the law of the gospel on murder, that um, it is not forgiven, and the commandment of God is that he who deliberately sheds the, ma the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. You must keep life sacred. And people sometimes, they get very sentimental about the criminal and and often they've had terrible backgrounds and they feel sympathetic for them and the Lord says you leave that to me you must not make his life more sacred than that of his victim you leave that to me you send him back to the spirit world that's what I command you to do in order that you can keep life sacred so sometimes our people even in the church get a little bit mixed up on capital punishment but if you follow the principles of the Lord they are just as just as they can be in within the frailties of human limitations 
and they, they establish order in a, in a society. But the man must be guilty beyond any shadow of doubt, beyond any shadow of doubt. The Lord says, if you're in doubt, leave it to me. Now, in due time, um, <clears throat> little Solomon was born, and Nathan came again. Oh, fine. Oh, no, no grudges, uh, David, no grudges. You know, the Lord told me, and I did it. Thou art the man. Um, now that's nice that we got this little baby. It's interesting that he should have come through this same lineage. And why Jehovah did this, I cannot tell you. If one of you asks me as I was asked in this morning's class, why did Solomon come through this particular line? I don't know, but Jehovah did it. And he was preparing his own lineage. So They probably were magnificent people, even though they had made their terrible mistake. And, and uh, Nathan said, this is a very special baby, therefore I'm going to name him what? Jedediah, which means beloved of the Lord. And therefore Solomon said, then I will name him my peaceable son, which would be Salem, Shalom, or Solomon. So Solomon is the name he bore. But it came, comes from the same derivative as Shalom and Salem. Those are all the same words coming out of the word meaning Peace, peace. Now, uh, by this time, of course, the Ammonites are finally ready to fall, and they cut off their water, and that was the end of that. And so David went over and, and was there for the coup d'etat and, and so forth. Then he comes home, things kind of settle down until we have this tragic situation where Tamar falls in love with her half, or excuse me, where, where Amnon falls in love with his half-sister, uh, Tamar. And that renegade Jonadab, his cousin, tells him how to seduce her and ravish her. And I, I don't know what he had in mind, how he thought he could get away with this, whether it would be a seduction <coughs> that he would keep secret or what he would do, but he got his own father to order her to come and take care of him. She's well known for her cooking ability and so forth, and, and so then while they were alone, he forced her. And then he hated her for it as soon as it was over and thrust her out. Well, you'd have thought she would have gone to her father, but she went to her full brother, whose name was Absalom. And he did an interesting thing. As soon as she told him that she had been ravished, oh, that just he, he was just exploding inside in rage. But to her, he just said, well, it's in the family. He's your brother. Forget it. Well, this was her plea. Occasionally, there were ma close marriages uh, this way, but it had to be by permission of the king. And so she pleaded with him. She says, wait, wait, wait. Why don't you at least ask our father if, we can, if you can have me and we could be married and do this right? And I mean, he wouldn't respond to that. You know, remember, she pleaded with him. It would have taken a... Uh, they were too closely related to permit it uh, under the law of Moses. Pardon? Yes, it was, it was allowed um, until the racial strains became contaminated, as they did after the flood. And when the law of Moses was given, the um, book of Leviticus sets up the lines within which they must not marry. It's incest if they do. And uh, it's, about, uh, it's, beyond, it's about third cousins and beyond. But what it does is to pile up the genetic uh, weaknesses so that it, 
it, it's uh, unfair to the children who are to be born. But in the early days, it, wasn't, it was not only permitted, it was commanded that to brother and sister marry, as were the children of Adam and Eve. So that the relationship, we, we think of it as being wrong, when as a matter of fact, um, it's a genetic problem as more than it is wrong. I mean, they're grown men and women. The fact that they happen to be brother and sister doesn't make it wrong, if it were not for the genetic factor. <clears throat> then, after two years, you'll remember they had the sheep shearing, and Absalom had all of his sheep up in these mountains off these thing. I'll tell you, the shearings, they are really something over in the Middle East. And, uh, I mean, it's market day, and uh, this is the harvest, and we, we're very nice to our customers and so forth. And... Um, so Absalom invited his father up, and his father said, if I come, all my court comes. You can't afford that, my son, to feed all these parasites that always go with me. So um, he said, maybe my sons could go. Oh, yes, Absalom says, all the sons. Amnon? Um, excuse me. Amnon, this is Amnon, isn't it? Uh, that uh, uh, he wants to be sure and come. Absalom says, and Amnon? Yes, and Amnon. All right. So he sets it up so that they all get into their cups and... And uh, the word of wisdom wasn't as strictly enforced in those days, and they got a little high on wine, and then Absalom gave the signal, and they immediately killed uh, Amnon. So the word came back to David. Of course, they'd all been killed, but uh, once again, Jonadab, he, he said, I don't think so. I, th I think it was just uh, Absalom wanted to get even with Amnon for ravishing his sister. I think that's all that happened, and sure enough, that's all that did happen. Then Absalom went off to where? And he stayed there. Uh, for a period of uh, three years, and then uh, David missed him badly, and jo Joab set it up so that the king in his own mind could justify bringing back this reprobate son. Did he bring him back to court? No, for two years he just had him hanging around and staying off in his estate, etc. And then finally, Absalom had great ambitions to be king. He's now the crown prince, isn't he? And he wants to set it up so he can get on with things. Well, he's going to be king and king in a hurry. And uh, so after two years, he tried to get uh, Joab's attention. Joab never came to see him, so what did he do? Yeah, I burned his wheat fields. And uh, Joab said, what'd you do that for? Well, he said, I'm trying to get your attention. Okay, he said, you got my attention. Now, what do you want? Well, he said, I want to get to court. Oh, well, so he let him come to court. Now, immediately he began setting up. He acted like the crown prince. He rode in his chariot. He had 50 men running in front of him. He'd go down at the judgment seat where David no longer sat because he was so embarrassed to be in front of the people to judge them. And he'd say to the people, you're a nice man. Uh, tell me about your family. If I were the judge of Israel, you would get justice. You see, he, he was really ingratiating himself, and it paid off. And he was finally ready uh, nine years altogether since he had killed Amnon, he was ready to seize the throne. And he's, his chief conspirator was whom? Ahithophel. Not a good one. Ahithophel. All you A-minus students. Ahithophel. Who was the prime minister? And so Absalom got the tribes together and made his a big announcement that he was now about to attack them.